Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Priette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Well, in my first podcast, I sat down with former state representative Mike Vion. We enjoyed a cup of coffee and cigar at the Leaf and Bean in downtown Pittsburgh. I wanted to get to know the man behind the politician as well as the man who spent time behind bars. We also talked about what he's up to now and his thoughts on the current political environment. I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to the first podcast of Brews and Views and enjoying uh, my favorite, uh, a cup of coffee in the morning, along with uh, probably one of my favorite accessories, a cigar. Uh, But even better than that, I'm joined by a a friend of, I think it's been 15 years, uh, Mike Vion is joining me here for the inaugural podcast of Brews and Views. Mike, uh, it's good to be with you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me. Obviously, it's a real pleasure and a real honor to be your inaugural guest on <laughs> Brews and Views. And I'm sharing that cup of coffee here with you. And as we've done quite a few times over the years, also sharing a great cigar early in the morning. That's right. Early, early in the morning. Uh, I know our conversation uh, has been uh, sometimes enjoying a cigar. Well, what's your favorite drink? And here it is. Uh, I think this is the best uh, way to enjoy a cigar. And so I'm glad we get to do this uh, uh, at the Leaf and Bean Strip District of Pittsburgh. I know uh, for both of us, sort of a uh, place that's become a, a, a office away from the office at times. It sure has a great summer office. You can come out here and as we are today, be in the open air, right on the sidewalk, smoking a cigar. It sure beats being inside four walls in some office. Uh, Mike, I, I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about you first, and and I know that will be very difficult, right? Uh, politicians always struggle talking about a real them. challenge. Yeah, yeah. Enough about me. What do you think about me? Is uh, you know the real challenge there? <laughs> uh, but Mike, I, let's start. Where, where did you grow up? Uh, you know, tell me how you grew up. Uh, you know, your family uh, background, your school, and then let's talk about what got you into politics and also what got you into trouble. Uh, <laughs> but uh, where did you grow up, Mike? I grew up here in western Pennsylvania in a town that many people are familiar with because it is the hometown of the one and only the legendary Broadway Joe Willie Namath. (laughs) That would be Beaver Falls Uh in Beaver County in western Pennsylvania. And as I was growing up, it was really a prototypical steel mill town, dominated by a mill that employed about 5,000 people. And in a county of the population at the time of say approximately 200, 210,000 people, you know, that was a very considerable plant mm-hmm. and was the economic, cultural, political center of northern Beaver County. And if you didn't work there, your uncle worked there, or your cousin worked there, or someone in your family worked there, your neighbor worked there. So that really dominated that part of Beaver County and I grew up in Beaver Falls which included that particular steel mill so think of that sort of prototypical this is the town. 1960s uh, yeah right so and, yeah I'm yeah. born in 1957 mm-hmm. so we're talking about the 1960s as I grew up and and that culture really dominated that part of Beaver County as it did much of western Pennsylvania at that time and uh, quite a bit different here in 2017 uh, I'm sure yeah dramatically different but 
just to give folks a flavor as they listen to this show, uh, that's the culture that many of us in western Pennsylvania grew up in. Uh, my own family, was, my father worked at a different plant, St. Joe Lead was the name of that facility, and coincidentally, that particular plant, which has been torn down, is now the site of the phenomenal shell cracker yeah, plant you bet. in Beaver County. You bet. So, so Mike, uh, did you grow up in a, a political family? Was it your parents that uh, paid attention to politics that ended it, why you ended up making a career in politics? Yeah, my family was always politically interested. And we had five kids in the family. I'm the oldest. Okay. I got three brothers and a sister. Uh, so you know, there's something that comes along with being the oldest child in the family and certainly the oldest son. Uh, perhaps I was paying more attention than the rest of my siblings to exactly what my parents were doing professionally. I understood it quicker. I earlier learned what they were up to and had some greater appreciation. My mother was a registered nurse. Again, always politically interested, but a registered nurse by vocation, and she did that for 35 years. Uh, my father worked in a blue-collar job at first at this St. Joe Lead Company and then ultimately moved to the purchasing department, which was really a white-collar mm. job, Okay. although he was a blue-collar guy in a white-collar yeah. shirt. Yeah. And he worked at that facility, but <clears throat> they were politically interested. But over time, my father got more active. So, for example, he became a township supervisor in our little township that we lived in for a while in White Township. Okay. He also became a member of the school board. So, certainly, while not uh, politics writ large, you know, Harrisburg. Uh -huh. Republican Democratic politics or Washington Republican Democratic politics is still is someone who's politically aware, politically active. You have to run to get elected to these jobs. Did he do that because he saw a problem that he wanted to fix or was he more of just politically minded and liked the idea of getting involved in politics? It was really the latter. Yeah. There weren't particular issues okay. he was trying to solve, but he, I think, became increasingly politically aware and increasing, increasingly interested in himself trying to participate in some way. And so first he was a supervisor, and he found that he liked it. People would call him to get their road fixed. People would call him to complain that their road wasn't fixed. Yeah. And you know, in any neighborhood political assignment like that you have, you can't escape your neighbors. You see them all the time. And But he, he was really good at it. And, and that experience really led him to just want to participate in the school district. So so when did you get the political bug, Mike? Was it in high school? Was it in college, after college? Because I know you graduate from Beaver Falls High. Uh, you go off to Allegheny College, correct? That's correct. Uh, were you a political science uh, major political there? Political science okay. major. So you had this uh, inclination towards politics. Is that uh, early on, or was that something during college you decided you wanted to pursue? Uh, really, it was very early on, and, and I, I would say there were three significant influences. One we just talked about, that my father got active in the local community. So while I'm seven, eight years old, nine, ten years old, all the way through high school, I mean, literally, I'm watching him do this job. And so when you're in the family and he's getting five, six, seven, eight phone calls a night, and you can at least hear his part of the conversation, you know, those conversations interested me. Mm. 
what he had to say, how he was talking to that person who had an issue or a problem. Uh, also, how he would talk to his colleagues about issues that they needed to solve. And I watched, for example, his efforts to try to put together the votes on a school board huh? to try to accomplish A, B, or C. So that was one influence. The second influence is I was just a voracious reader of books, something I just came upon as a young child. And one of the most interesting topics, even at a very early young age, were biographies of political figures. Mm -hmm. you know, these could have been very basic biographies in the early days and you know, more lengthy, detailed, substantive biographies in the later days, but of mostly political figures. Presidents, Martin Luther King, for example, I must have, even as a child read quite a few books. So that was the second influence, mm -hmm. you know, just being immersed in reading that even as a young student and then eventually a young high school student. And the third influence was my uncle. This would be my father's uncle. Uh, my father's uncle was a fascinating guy. He was a polio victim as a teenager. Mm. And it's the day before, of course, polio vaccines and polio was much more common. So he was a polio victim. He used a wheelchair a lot of the time. He also had braces on his legs and he used crutches quite a bit to get around. Yeah, but despite that kind of a physical challenge, he was very active in his community. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, he coached Little League Baseball, for example. And then he was elected to city council in Beaver Falls. And he also served as a mayor in Beaver Falls. So mm -hmm. I can remember even as a young kid taking flyers and leaflets door to door on behalf of my uncle. And he became a real inspiration, a guy in those days, there weren't very many people with that kind of disability who were active in public life. Mm -hmm. So for example, the city council chambers in the Beaver Falls Municipal Building was on the second floor. So he literally had to have folks pick him up at the bottom of the steps and carry him up to the council meeting every time there wow. was a meeting. And so I watched that uh -huh. from time to time and I was really struck by the determination that takes, the ability to face down that physical yeah. challenge. And, and these are the days before any kind of great accessibility right, for right. wheelchairs, etc. So his inspiration was certainly something that sparked in me that interest in politics. Those and, are the and three influences. So, uh, so in western Pennsylvania, pretty much uh, you're born with uh, Democrat registration, right? I mean, that, that, that is the overwhelming at this time that, that you're growing up. Was there ever any question of which party uh, you would be or, or, you know, what your philosophy was? I mean, was that something that your parents had uh, really developed in you or you did it on your own? I really did it on my own. They never tried to... Were they I mean, Democrats? Yeah, they say, were okay. Democrats, yes, yes. And you know, as you said, just about everybody was yeah, a Democrat right, right. in those days. And, but they never tried to convince me to be a Democrat and... It wasn't something we talked about around the supper table. Uh, obviously, your parents' interest in politics and their party affiliation by every bit of research I've ever done you know, over the many years since you you know, has a tremendous impact on what ultimately your politics are for the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. you know, some folks who are very counterintuitive, and because their parents are Democrats, they become Republicans just yeah. because. <laughs> right? I know friends who actually have done that. But in my case, I think certainly they were influential in that way, just by osmosis. 
Um, but I would make the case that I also believe I came to it honestly, intellectually, mm -hmm. over time. As I said, even reading as I did as a young man, as a high school student, as a college student. So uh, you get out of college and you say, I'm not doing this township supervisor, school board, mayor stuff. I'm running for Congress. I'm going to Washington, correct? <laughs> well, I took uh, some detours first. So All I, right. I come out of college in 1979, great liberal arts school in Allegheny College. Uh, wanted a liberal arts degree. I also went there because they allowed me to play football. All right. So I played football in high school, and I wanted to play high, high, uh, football in college. And, of course, at my size and height, the, the best you can do is a Division three football. I'm in the same club, Mike, Division three football. A little, uh, a little way to keep your career going, right? <laughs> yeah, it really was. It, it was enjoyable. It was. It was. You know, as you know, you get that camaraderie. You, you bet. get a chance to have that experience with folks that you really like. Wouldn't trade it for anything. And so I went there because I could play football there and because it had a great reputation, still does, has a tremendous reputation as a very good liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. So I went there, I did get a degree in political science, but like a lot of people who get a degree in political science, when you get it, you say, what in the hell am I gonna do with this? <laughs> you can go teach. Uh, yeah, you could, <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't, you know, like many liberal arts degrees, doesn't necessarily give you a direct path mm -hmm. to a specific assignment or specific job or specific, uh, certainly uh, it can give you a path to a specific broad sphere, but it doesn't give you a specific path. But I did figure political science degree, I probably ought to go to Washington, D.C. Uh -huh. Sounds like there's a lot of politics going on there <laughs> and try to figure out how to get gainfully employed once I get there. So I packed up my car. I called a buddy who was going to Georgetown Dental School. I said, make room on your couch. I'll be there in about three or four days. And I slept on his couch for many months. Uh-huh. And I got to Washington, D.C., and I bartended. Like anybody who can't uh -huh. find right. a job in your profession. <laughs> I became a bartender at the best neighborhood bar in Arlington, Virginia. Okay. Fantastic experience. And then in the daytime, I hustled politics. Volunteered for campaigns, mostly. Uh, local campaigns, congressional campaigns, any campaign I could find, I would just try to go make myself useful. Uh -huh. And through that networking, and through those relationships, and hopefully through my ability to show I could do these jobs, even though you aren't paying me, I was able to turn that into actual meaningful work in politics in a very short term. Well, and that seems to be an avenue a lot of people take, right? Uh, it's sort it really of that is. entry. Um, I myself uh, volunteered on a campaign, and that's what got me into this business as well. Uh, yeah. Although never running uh, for elected office, uh, certainly, uh, you know, was that bug that I caught uh, uh, back in the 1990s. So, so Mike, uh, you, what's your first office you run for? So I, I before I ran for office, so in uh, 1981, and I, it's an interesting personal story. In 1981, Ronald Reagan, of course, is president. He's riding very high. And this is the era of Reagan Democrats, a term that is still used today. Uh -huh. And those Reagan Democrats, many of them were Western Pennsylvania blue collar. You know, we've come full circle where folks talk about those kind of same 
similar voters, that similar demographic voted for Donald Trump. But this is 1980 presidential election, 1981, and Ronald Reagan's riding very high politically. Mm -hmm. Reagan Democrats certainly helped him have the margin of victory that he did. And there was a, a lot of trepidation within the Democratic Party that, just like now, we're losing these Democrats, these blue-collar workers. They're voting for a Republican. What's going on? How is this happening? Et cetera, et cetera. It's eerily familiar to me. My congressman from Beaver County, former Democratic County Commissioner, Chairman of the Board, former uh, Democratic Party Chairman in Beaver County, elected to Congress in 1976. As a young man, I volunteered for him, made phone calls, knocked on doors, etc., like many people did. In 1981, he switched parties in the Rose Garden and became the lone Democrat in the Northeast, east of the Mississippi, uh, who switched parties mm. and became a mm. Republican. So I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. I'm watching this because we're all, we active Democrats were anticipating that there were going to be 15 Democrats switch parties okay. in the Rose Garden. It turns out there's one. One. My congressman. <laughs> Your guy. <laughs> and so... Literally, as I'm watching it, I turned to my friends and said, I'm leaving, I'm going back to Beaver <laughs> County, and I'm going to work for whoever's running against this guy. And within a few weeks, I was back in Beaver County, already working on the campaign for someone who ran against Eugene Atkinson. Uh, Joe Coulter was the state house member at that time from Beaver County. Uh, he goes on to defeat Gene Atkinson in the 1982 election. Mm -hmm. And I went to Washington with Joe Coulter and spent a year at 25 years old as his legislative director. All right. So, so then when do you decide, you know what, I want my name on the ballot rather than working for folks uh, to get them elected? Yeah, interesting. So at, at the end of the first year I was working for Joe Coulter, I decided that I didn't want to work for him anymore. And that Christmas... Uh, when I came home, I told my parents that I just quit my job. <laughs> of course, they said, you can't quit your job. This is the first real job you ever had. Uh, I said, well, not only did I quit my job, but I'm moving home in about three weeks, and I'm going to run for state legislator. Now, both my parents said, you're out of your mind. <laughs> you have no job. You have no money whatsoever. You have no place to live, and you're going to run for the state house. Yes, Mom and Dad, that's what I'm going to do. And so I did. And this is 1980? This is Christmas of 1983. Okay. Going into early January 1984. All right, and you're elected to the State House in, uh, in 1984. Elected to the State House in 1984. I had just turned 26 as the election started. I moved home in mid-January. Again, I had no job, uh -huh. no money. And the primary was April 17th. It was early that year. It was mid-April, uh -huh. earlier than normal in this uh, presidential year. And <clears throat> there were seven candidates in the race, including an incumbent, one-term incumbent. And others were local elected officials, mayor of Beaver Falls, councilman in little town of New Brighton. So there were seven of us. The good news for me is that I was obviously the youngest no one paid any attention to me whatsoever. 
and they essentially attacked each other and left me alone figuring <laughs> this kid's just getting in our way anyhow and that was part of it and you know I think part of it was it was a seven-way race and I could win with 27 percent so I ended up winning that primary but by about 113 votes in a seven-way race why were there so many candidates in this race so many candidates in race because the incumbent was only there one term most of the Democratic folks thought he had been unfairly handpicked for the assignment the seat had been held by this gentleman who became the congressman uh -huh. and the party selected mm -hmm. this gentleman as the nominee so there was still a lot of anger about that within the party that he didn't deserve it you know rightly or fairly or not I deserved it a lot more everyone would say and because it was the first term, everybody knew this is your only chance. You either beat him in this primary, his first re-election, or like most incumbents, he's going to be there a long time. So you come into the Pennsylvania State House, 1985, January of 85, um, one of 203 members. Uh, that can be a, you know, some folks can be there for 20, 30 years and never uh, rise out of being rank and file. Uh, but you... Uh, rose fairly quickly uh, and ended up uh, being in leadership of uh, the Democratic caucus. Talk about that. How, how did you how'd you do that? What was it um, that uh, pushed you to the forefront of, I guess, a popularity contest uh, with your uh, other members of your caucus? Uh, but you had a pretty good run there in leadership. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I did have a great run in leadership. And really, it's one of the great honors of my life like anyone in any profession to be recognized by your peers is almost always the greatest honor you can have right I mean, they know what the job is they know what you're doing they understand that you can't make it up no one knows the job better than the folks that you work with uh, you, you really cannot BS them you can't fool them your colleagues in any profession that's so true and so to be honored by others in your profession I think is always the most special honor in a profession so it's really one of the great honors of my life to have the confidence of my colleagues as you know Matt and most people don't know this but when you are in leadership in a legislative body you have to be elected by your colleagues and even, I think, more special than that, you have to be elected by your colleagues in a secret ballot vote. <laughs> right. And so you know, folks can say, yes, I'm with you all the way, and vote against you in a secret ballot vote. So that process itself, I think, is special. It's affirming when you go through it. And again, it's quite an honor to have your colleagues on a secret ballot vote vote you into a leadership position in that profession. Well, Mike, uh, some, some would say that uh, over your time there, um, uh, you got uh, a little bit away from the constituents' uh, wants and needs, uh, in particular with the uh, pay raise of 2005, uh, that that was uh, uh, your undoing uh, and losing touch uh, with the constituents who said, you know what, that's just a bridge too far for us, particularly the increase uh, that was tied to congressional uh, pay raise, pay rates. Um, is that a fair characterization of what happened in 2005? You just got a little too greedy? 
That's a fair characterization <laughs> of, of what most voters yeah, certainly right, right. ended up believing by a 51.5 to 48.5 <laughs> in case anyone's keeping score margin in a general election. So just enough voters certainly took that away from it. And, and obviously, I didn't feel that way about it. I appreciated the anger that many voters expressed. I certainly understand the point of view that you articulated. I understood that many voters felt that way. And that's not how I felt about it, of course. I was, really was not doing it in an arrogant way. My thought process were several things. First of all, when I got to the legislature in 1984, we were making about $40,000. And I knew that by the time I got there, that other leaders before me had been able to get pay raise, pay raises through that legislature. Look, a pay raise for a public official is never, ever, ever going to be popular. Never. Right. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> and so if you went only by that standard and only by what the voters would approve or only by what the voters would think is well done, the state legislature would be making $40,000 today or less in 2017. So I felt as a leader an obligation to do what other leaders had done before me, which was to raise the level of pay and over time, in theory at least, be able to have legislators who could do this job full time and as state government became more complicated, more complex, I felt strongly that the legislative body should always be a very equal partner in state government. And that if you're doing it part-time, you cannot be an equal partner with somebody who's working at it full-time, whether that be the governor or the bureaucrat in the Department of Public Welfare. So I felt an obligation as a leader to get that pay raise through because folks did it for me before I got there, number one. And number two, because I felt that obligation, I took the leadership role in getting that pay raise passed. Again, I know it's not popular. I understand that there's going to be a tremendous amount of heat. But I felt my job as a leader in the legislature was to be the person who takes that heat, to step up even when it's unpopular, for all the reasons that I just mm -hmm. articulated. And I felt strongly about that. And so, well, so strongly uh, that you were the only one to not vote for its repeal. Uh, I think it was, was it 202 to 1? Uh, it for, was. <laughs> to repeal that pay raise. Uh, so I have no doubt uh, that your sincerity of why you thought that this uh, needed to happen. So to your credit or to your demise, I guess, because of the electoral outcome of, of 06 in response to that, um, there were quite a few people who lost their jobs over over that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there were many reasons for that. I mean, uh, the onset of, for example, political radio. You know, there That's was right. a, where, there was a time when those kinds of very unpopular issues just weren't magnified or amplified as much. Where you didn't have the let's say the outside agitation that wasn't as acute. But it was interesting to watch the dynamics, and, and you know well, and I know you remember this, is that this was an era that political radio just was becoming uh, highlighted and bringing in many, many, many more listeners. Uh, and that was a real factor in the political reaction to Well, in that fact, uh, when you would look at uh, where uh, the largest number of 
defeats of incumbents and overlay some of the loudest talk radio stations, there is a clear correlation. You can see it with KDKA out in Pittsburgh, WHP in the central part of the state. Uh, and so there was, I, I think that you're absolutely right. And then you add to it the internet and the ability to uh, communicate that way. Uh, ended up shining a big bright light on this pay raise that uh, I think we saw 58 uh, members of the House and Senate uh, turned out either voluntarily or involuntarily. Yes, absolutely. It's the largest in my lifetime in the state legislature, the largest number of folks who lost their jobs, many of them absolutely directly attributed to the pay raise issue. But again, I didn't go into that with any rose-colored glasses. I understood yeah. the politics and I appreciated the politics and I knew this was going to be tremendously difficult and challenging, but that's what I signed up for. Well, Mike, uh, so in 06, uh, you're fighting for your political life, uh, and it's uncovered a couple years later that during that time, uh, bonuses were given out to state workers that uh, were said to be doing campaign work uh, with taxpayer money. Uh, this, of course, led to what was known as the bonus gate scandal. Uh, you got caught up in it, uh, a number of others, and then, of course, it went even beyond that where it got uh, Bill DeWeese uh, and, and John Purzell, uh, unrelated to Bonus Gate, but that seemed to be the predominant um, talk of the town of, of what was happening. Um, to this day, uh, are, do you still plead that uh, you were not guilty in that, uh, in the bonuses that uh, were given out for, for uh, uh, campaign work? Uh Yes, I did not give bonuses out for campaign work. At the same time, I think everyone in Harrisburg at that time, and many people before that time, a lot of people since that time, do understand that the culture in Harrisburg at that time was that many staff people did some campaign political work in the state capitol and in the district offices. Uh, that was true in 1984 when I got to the state capitol. It was true 10 years later in 1994 as I worked as the chairman of the House Democratic Campaign Committee. And it was true in 2006 when I lost my office. And that doesn't mean that every staff person in the capitol was doing campaign work all the time or that every office did campaign work always. But it certainly was true that there was a gray line on what was political, what was campaign work, mm -hmm. and what was legislative. And actually, there, I thought there was a interesting and fair debate and discussion about where that line should be drawn. It had never been drawn in the state legislature, not in any legal way, not in any even formal ethical way with the Ethics Commission. And so the culture developed over time that campaign work was done in the state capitol. And I think any observer of the capitol, certainly any participant in the capitol, legislator, governor's office, staff people, were well aware of that culture. Where that line got drawn, we soon found out in 2008, 2009, and 2010. Uh, by Tom Corbett, and, and I know 
you can imagine I have a few things to say about that. <laughs> well, and uh, Bill DeWeese, uh, your former colleague in the House, said uh, if, uh, if this is the standard, we may as well put Constantino wire all the way around the state capitol because everybody has engaged in some level of campaign work. So uh, I understand those gray areas. Uh, you end up being the one who helps define uh, what those are and spent, uh, what, almost uh, five years uh, in prison. Uh, tell us about that experience. That's something that uh, most people uh, don't get to or have to experience. What was that like? Yeah, and before we do yeah. that, I do want to yeah. just make this point that uh, that line was drawn. And there's a good argument to be made that the line should be drawn. Uh, but the line could have been drawn in a way that made everyone aware that there's a new line. This is where the line's going to be between politics and campaign work and legislative work. And going forward, anyone who crosses this line is in jeopardy of some criminal prosecution. And that didn't happen. And I do want to make this point that the other hypocrisy about this with Tom Corbett specifically is that most people in Harrisburg who were in that state capitol were aware, well aware that Tom Corbett's staff, while he was attorney general, prosecuting legislators for doing campaign work on state time, his own staff were in fact doing campaign work on state time. So I just want to make that point well, of and, hypocrisy. And, Not, yeah. Hypocrisy abounds in politics. So, and, and maybe before we we talk about your time in prison, um, uh, some would have said, why were there no prosecutions of the Senate, of folks in the Senate? Clearly, you uh, got you, DeWeese, Perzell, leaders in, in the House of Representatives. But others pointed out that uh, there was uh, a staffer who left in, 20, in 2006, uh, to help the Lynn Swan campaign for governor, uh, comes back to the Senate as staff in leadership and receives a bonus that was equivalent to the amount of time that he was away uh, doing campaign work. Uh, yet none of this ends up coming out. And I, I've since heard, you know, it's all rumors or conjecture that uh, uh, somebody told Tom Corbett to stop uh, with the House. Uh, because he didn't want to offend everybody up in that capital that he would have to work with as governor. Yeah, and who knows? You're right. It's rumor and conjecture. Yeah. We've all heard those but kinds of But we've seen the numbers. I mean, we see the numbers of the bonuses that were given out to uh, staffers that were never prosecuted or weren't even questioned, at least the people who had knowledge of this. Yeah, well, there's no question that there were arbitrary decisions made, and I mean, that's the nature of the business. And hypocrisy abounds in politics. <laughs> Unfortunately, this say hypocrisy, it isn't so, Mike. Yeah, say it isn't so. We we know that, and I get that, and I understand that. Unfortunately, this hypocrisy came with uh, grand jury subpoenas, grand jury testimony, and ultimately indictments. That's the difference between normal hypocrisy in politics <laughs> and this particular hypocrisy by this prosecutor who wanted to be governor. And look, I get all that. I was in politics. It's not the first time it happened. It won't be the last time it happened where a prosecutor literally wants to put hides on the wall, trophies yeah, on right. the wall. It's the nature of the business. I'm not whining about it. I'm not crying about it. I signed up for politics, but I also know what it was to this day. And that kind of hypocrisy exists in prosecutors who want to advance their career. It happens all the time. 
and Tom Corbett just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right amount of hypocrisy to take advantage of that kind of prosecution. So uh, there aren't many things that, that scare me, uh, if you will, uh, but I think if uh, uh, I were convicted of a crime and knowing I'm going to uh, jail, that would scare me. Uh, was that scary for you when you're like, I'm going to be locked up for years? Um, not, not so much fear of your life or anything, but just that, I mean, your freedom being taken away. Um, was, that, was that scary for you? Or how did, how did you respond when they said, guilty, you're off to jail? Yeah, and I can't say that I was fearful or scared or afraid. And just taking a step back and just to try to walk through my mindset at the time, you know, this was a two-year investigation by Tom Corbett, so there were news articles all the time. Yep. You knew who was testifying in front of the grand jury. You always had some idea of what was happening. And certainly it was clear that indictments were going to be made, and I clearly was the prime target. And look, I was the leader. I was the political leader of the House Democratic Caucus. I was either the named campaign chairman or the de facto campaign chairman. I was the top strategic person in the House Democratic Caucus. That's what I was, and that's what I did. So it wouldn't be a surprise that I would be the top target of any investigation about politics and campaign in the House Democratic Caucus. So this is over a couple of years. So then I'm indicted, I plead not guilty, and I had an argument to make, and I wanted to make that argument. And I think there's two important points there. Number one, I did have an argument to make, and I did believe that I had the case to make as to why this culture existed and why this shouldn't be criminal and why I wasn't guilty of these particular crimes. I made the decision to fight for my reputation and my freedom. And I did it proudly. I did it aggressively. I had a nine-week trial in Dauphin County. According to the trial judge, it was the longest trial in Dauphin County history. Mm. I had been indicted on 59 counts. I was found not guilty of 45 of those 59 counts. Because most of them were nonsense. And, and however, you can be guilty of one of 59 <laughs> counts yeah. and still have serious repercussions. But I fought for what I believed in. I stood up tall. I went to court every day. I worked hard on my defense. And I made my case. And that was very important to me. The second point is, and this is something that I'm not a hero for this, but it's important to me, is that I was offered a deal by this prosecutor that if you will testify against everyone else that we're going to charge, and if you will help us with our investigation, and if you know more about this than anybody, you're the central figure. And if you will walk us through it, and if you help with our investigation, and if you then will have to testify against everyone we indict, we will go very easy on you. You're the key here. And I looked them right in the eye and said, no, not now, not ever. That's just not going to happen. I've got to live with myself for the rest of my life. And but I'm there not were gonna... others who took that deal, correct? There were many yeah. who took that deal. Yeah. And look, everybody has to make their own decision yeah. about their life. I'm not necessarily castigating or saying something negative about anyone who made that decision for their own life. And I understand the real difficulty in making that decision. 
I'm not trying to say I'm a hero for making this. This was my decision. Yep. I made it for my reasons. I felt I had to look myself in the mirror the rest of my life, and I'm not going to get on the stand and testify against people that worked for me or worked next to me and say, yes, they should be prosecuted, they should be found guilty, and they should go to jail. That's just not going to happen with me. And I made that very clear, not now, not ever, and don't even talk about it again because it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I felt very, very strongly about that. And I know that's often a, sort of an overlooked aspect of this, and um, but it was important to me. No, I so. knew that, and that's, that's uh, I think, why you ended up uh, having the longest term of anybody because you refused to, uh, I guess, cooperate in that way of, of helping the investigation go after your friends. Yeah, clearly, that I was punished for saying, no, I'm not going to ha go after my friends. You cannot put me on the stand. That's just not going to happen, not in my lifetime, not with me, not ever. And I felt so strongly about it. But look, it was a very difficult conversation with my wife, for uh -huh. example. I had to really help her understand why I could not do it, despite going easy on me, quote unquote, despite giving me a very short sentence, despite you know, giving me the ability to get out from under this in a, in a minimum way. And it was a months long conversation with my wife, a very difficult conversation. Uh, to her great credit, she ultimately understood and accepted the decision that I made that, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fight for what I believe in, and I'm going to make this case. So uh, you go off to Laurel Highlands. Uh, sound, almost sounds like a country club, right? Uh, uh, what was the environment like there? How, how, how was your time there? Yeah, there, it, it, there is this fallacy that anybody who's convicted of a white-collar crime like I was, somehow ends up in a country club <laughs> prison setting where they play tennis and exercise all day and walk around the track and eat good. And there are some federal prisons that are specifically for white collar, you know, and therefore require less security and have more amenities and for all the right reasons are built and designed in a way that treats white collar criminals. In state government and the state prison system, there are no such places, period. They don't exist. And there are some facilities that are higher security, so they'll have more guards, they'll have more uh, systems in place that are more restrictive. Maybe there's less time outside of your confinement, for example, and those would be the maximum security prisons in the state system, and Laurel Highlands is not one of those. It's really an average, run-of-the-mill state prison system, uh, but it's not a country club, and it is <laughs> actual state prison. How'd that change you, Mike? What, how did prison time change you? Did it change you at all? It really didn't change me at all, and I, I do want to say that, look, as I've told you uh, off the air, and we've talked about this, and as I've told many people, first of all, this experience for me, I do not whine about it. I don't cry about it. Things happen to people, right? I have friends who never came back from Iraq. Now, that family and their experiences are dramatically worse 
than anything that I experienced. I have friends who came back from Afghanistan. I have some extended family members with no legs mm -hmm. or no arm. That guy's experience, his family's experience, is dramatically worse than anything I experienced. Their best day, their best day is worse than my worst day in my state prison yeah. experience. Yeah. I, I really believe that. Hey, and perspective is everything. Their perspective uh, yeah. is really important. I went into state prison with that perspective. Uh -huh. uh, fortunately, I'm strong-willed enough to have kept that perspective every day I was in state prison, that things happen to people. Uh, while I'm in state prison, I have friends dying of cancer, for example. I have a friend whose daughter was uh, dramatically, traumatically injured in a car accident. Right? She'll never be the same. She'll never be the same in mind or body. Mm -hmm. That family's experience is a thousand times worse than my worst day in state prison. And I think that's an important perspective. I had that going in. I kept it every day I was in state prison. And I walked out the door five years later with that same perspective. So uh, let, let's shift to what you're doing now. Uh, and then I want to get your take on all things politics, right? From Trump to uh, Pennsylvania, budget stuff. Uh, what are you up to now? What's, uh, what's putting food on the table today since uh, it's not, not elected office any longer? No, but like many former elected officials, uh, one easy transition to make is into the lobbying world. Mm -hmm. And I am doing some lobbying for a variety of clients. Uh, it's something that I know it's something that I was very good at. It's something that I'm still very good at. I mean, I understand state government. I understand how it works. I understand the politics of state government. I understand politics generally. And I think that fortunately, I have been able to keep a, that part of my reputation intact, that I was good at what I did, that I did provide good leadership while there on issues and public policy. I helped advance causes that I believed in. I helped to defeat many of your wrong-headed <laughs> proposals that you made. Once in a while you got them through, but uh, you know, I worked hard at that and I was good at it. And that, those are qualities that certainly you still have through life. And so I do some lobbying. I do some strategic consulting where you don't necessarily lobby, but somebody will come to you and say, Mike, what do you think about this issue? How would you approach it? What would a strategy be? What kind of, which legislators should we talk to? Who do you think could provide leadership on this? Who's going to provide the most significant opposition? Where would the governor's office fall on this? And so that strategic consulting I really like, and I think I'm, I am particularly good at that, and people find value in that. And... At the same time, you don't lobby on those issues, mm -hmm. right? There's a difference. So when you lobby, as you know, you have to register to lobby. And for your listening audience, when you do strategic consulting, you don't have to call a legislator and say, please vote this way. Therefore, you're not a registered lobbyist, but you're still participating in the process. So I really like that part of it, and I do quite a bit of that. Yeah, and I know you're good at it, which uh, to my chagrin uh, means that, uh, well, we're going to be on opposite sides uh, as we were. <laughs> Uh, many years ago, uh, but the the nice thing is that we can sit down and have a good conversation. We can disagree, but not be disagreeable. Uh, something that um, I fear is 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 being lost, certainly at the national level. Uh, do you see that 
at the state level as well with uh, some dysfunction that's going on? And uh, is it is it worse today uh, than it's ever been from you know from your perspective, Mike? Because you've been you've been involved in this since the the 1980s. Uh, so have a long perspective from both in D.C. and in Harrisburg. Um, is this uh, is this as bad as it's ever been, or is hey, it's always been this way that you have these kinds of uh, disagreements and um, I guess the the polarization and partisan uh, sniping that that uh, seems to be that we can't get some thing big things done anymore. So I, I what what what's your take on that? I would say that it is more polarized now than the vast majority of the time I was in office. There might have been much briefer moments where we had what could fairly be described as polarization around certain issues, but it wasn't constant. It wasn't all the time. It wasn't across the board on every issue. So I think that that is different, and that has been driven by, I think, the polarization within each party. Yeah. Right? That I understand the reality of the politics. If you want to be elected as a Republican in most districts in Pennsylvania right now, you have to be more conservative than the other guy in the primary. That's how you win the election. And I absolutely understand those politics. And for many uh, Democratic districts in Pennsylvania, you have to be further to the left in order to win that primary. And the energy is in the primary and the energy is in being able and you can't be in the legislature unless you win, period. You can't be the nominee unless you win the primary. Right. So there's a necessity to move politically to the polar opposites. And that is part of what has happened over time, the nature of politics. But I think that ebbs and flows over the arc of history. Yeah. Right. It's, it's more polarized than in my own experience since the 1980s. But I think you can go back. I'm confident. I know you can go back. I've looked at it myself and find other eras within politics in Washington and in state capitals where there was similar polarization. Well, let's talk a, a bit about Pennsylvania uh, in the context of the 2016 election. Of course, um, Pennsylvania had not voted for a Republican for president since 1988. So it pretty much been in the, uh, the blue wall or part of the blue wall that certainly Hillary Clinton was counting on uh, to deliver Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, you know, some of these states that have long, long uh, supported the Democratic uh, presidential candidate. What happened in 2016 in Pennsylvania uh, from your perspective, from your, you know, political uh, analysis hat? What, what, what took place in the Commonwealth? Well, first, I want to admit that, like everyone else, I still thought Hillary would win Pennsylvania. I have a few. Oh, I was until 9.30 on Tuesday night. Uh, I was planning for a Clinton presidency. Sure. And, and I think you know, from everything I've read post-election, and even as I was in the moment, um, there are very few people who predicted Trump was going to win, even in the Trump's own campaign circles. I mean, they just didn't expect to win. So... What, everything that I'm talking about here and everything I've talked about since the election is really retrospective, right? right. right? In hindsight, uh, we should have done this and we should have mm -hmm. done that. But I did believe at the time that 
the Clinton campaign was doing the best job they could in Pennsylvania. I thought they were making the right strategic and tactical decisions. And it's only in hindsight where we say, no, they weren't the right decisions. Well, and that and they large. and they lost uh, some of the people when we were talking about earlier, those, uh, you know, Reagan Democrats. Uh, right. You saw a lot of uh, folks that uh, I call them the, the hard hat union guys, uh, certainly out in western Pennsylvania. You saw some of these counties uh, go in with 80, 90 percent uh, for Trump, uh, despite their voter registration having a D after uh, their name. Uh, that seemed to be. Uh, what turned this this state uh, for Donald Trump and away from Hillary Clinton? Is that uh, is that accurate? I mean, as you were talking about the Reagan di- Democrat dynamic in the 1980s, is that the same phenomenon that just happened in 2016? It certainly is a, a big and important part of what happened in 2016. Uh, but it's also something that we knew was coming. So that you know that the fact that blue collar Democrats were voting for Trump, we knew that before the election before Mm -hmm. election day you know we knew that throughout the summer there were plenty of focus groups and polling that everyone was looking at me included and where we understood that that person was voting for Donald Trump many of them were voting for Donald Trump and we also I think it's fair to say that this has been a trend it wasn't just the 2016 election where these Democrats or folks registered Democrat in Western Pennsylvania just all of a sudden stopped voting right. Democrat and, and voted Republican. Many of them have been voting Republican over time. So, uh, for example, even somebody like John Kerry, who uh, is in many ways your prototypical national Democrat of that era, uh, barely won my home county of Beaver County. He wins it by under 2,000 votes. And you know, so that has been happening. Yeah. I saw it happening in my own legislative district. That guy who was a still worker, when I got elected in 1984, 5,000 people worked in that mill. In 1989, no one worked in that mill. Mm. And so that social, economic, cultural center, really this anchor to politics where they instinctively understood my progressive economic policies when I knocked on that same guy's door in the mid-1990s, he said, Mike, I'm not for you. What do you mean you're not for me? We had all these great conversations in the union hall. Remember, still workers, economy. You got a nice, great pension plan because of the support that we Democrats have provided to these laws over the years. Yeah, but you know, you're not good enough on guns. <laughs> yeah. I'm not good enough on guns. <laughs> Uh, no, you're not good enough. And by the way, I'm sick and tired of you supporting the teachers union, and that's causing my property taxes to go up. I'm not going to vote for you anymore. I'm sorry. Same guy. Yeah, right. Same guy voted for me every election. Mm. I knock on his door. He never voted for me again. Multiply that by hundreds and then eventually a thousands. And so we knew that was happening. Mm-hmm. But I think the surprise was, A, the margin of turnout in some of these districts, uh, some of these counties, yeah. I mean. So it's not just that they were voting for Trump, but it became the volume. Yes. So that energy, yes. that enthusiasm on that side. And when you're talking about maybe 5% in this county, 5% in that county, remember, we know that Trump wins Pennsylvania by essentially 1% of the vote. We're talking about in the neighborhood of 50 
to 60,000 boats at most. You know, some probably the official count has it between 40 and 50,000. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So an extra thousand boats in Beaver County, for example, which there were more than that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily the margin that Trump wins Beaver County by, but it's the overall turnout that took me by surprise and I think many other analysts by surprise. And conversely, the turnout for some of the Democratic constituencies just wasn't what we expected it to be. And there was this theory going into the campaign for every Reagan Democrat that you lose in western Pennsylvania, you gain a suburban female college-educated voter in Montgomery County, for example. And there mm -hmm. was a lot of truth to right. that. That right. was happening. But it came up short by 50,000 votes. So um, you were in the House of Representatives when Democrats uh, had majorities, um, albeit a brief time period. Uh, today, uh, we're looking at 70-year historic margin, marginal differences between uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, in both the House and the Senate. Uh, 121 to, to 82 in the House and 34 16 in the Senate, yet Democrats still have an over, you know, a registration advantage uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, what do you attribute that to? Uh, is it this dynamic that you were just talking about? Um, is it gerrymandering, as, as folks want to wanna, uh, say, that that's why Republicans have these large majorities? What, what's, what's happening in Pennsylvania? Uh, no, it's a great question. And I do want to say that I did serve a 12-year I was there 22 years, and half my time was in the majority and half my time was in the minority. But also that even my time in the minority, we Democrats were usually within striking right, distance. Right. Right? We might have been two seats short. Maybe mm -hmm. it was 102, 101, or 104 Republican. You know, we were always within five, six, or seven seats. So even in the minority, it was an empowered minority because the next election could be different or you only needed a handful of Republicans to go against their party on a given issue. So the dynamics were dramatically different within that state legislature, even though we were in a minority. Right, right. And some of those times we were in a minority by four or five seats and we had a Democratic governor. So you're even more empowered as a minority caucus and you really can accomplish so much more. But to your point about the dramatic difference with then and now, and the Democrats being so deep in the minority now, and I really think it's the most important attribution, what I attribute that most importantly to, is really a, a more of a cult, cultural, socio-economic phenomenon that's happening all across the country. And it's the self-sorting of folks into like-minded neighborhoods. And again, this happens over time. Sure. Somebody just doesn't pick up and say, I don't like the politics here, I'm going to move you know, two counties over. But over time, there is that kind of sorting. And as you know, Matt, well, but many casual observers of politics don't know, is that even though Democrats have a million more registered voters in Pennsylvania than Republicans, they're not widely dispersed. That they're largely centered in these urban settings within the state of Pennsylvania. Right. And so you have a tremendous disparity between Democrats and Republicans in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, for example, in party registration. 
And those urban centers are what adds to the one million vote difference in the state. But as you travel the state, you very quickly understand that those urban centers are the urban centers. And you get outside of those urban centers, and there's a wide swath of Pennsylvania with a whole lot of people and a whole lot of registered Republicans represented by Republicans in the state legislature. So I think it's really this phenomena of people over time um, living in areas that they're comfortable with culturally, and that cultural comfort tends to also reflect a political comfort for the most part. And, and it does seem that uh, your conversation with the guy who had voted for you for a long time, uh, that the Democrat Party is um, really purging uh, folks, Second Amendment folks, uh, pro-life folks, uh, and that there's almost this litmus test now that um, certainly out in Western Pennsylvania, uh, those are important, have been important issues for uh, Democrats out here, uh, whether it's their Catholic faith that uh, makes them pro-life uh, or just, you know, the culture of, of hunting and, and being very comfortable uh, with guns out here in the Western part of the state. Yet um, they're finding that their home is not in the Democratic Party anymore. Is that, is that a problem that, that you see uh, within the party of how they're going to, um, you know, be able to win in, in western Pennsylvania again? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. It's a very clear problem, a very obvious problem, a uh, often discussed but never solved problem <laughs> right. the Democratic Party has. There's no question about it. And, then, you know, I can look around in western Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, for example, and think of the colleagues that I serve with in the Democratic Caucus from Clearfield County, from Clarion County, from Center County, from Crawford County, Democrats uh -huh. I'm talking about, right? Uh, from Mercer County, from remote parts of Erie County. I mean, rural areas largely held by Democrats who got elected term after term after term after term. None of those districts are today represented by a Democrat. Worse than that, in my opinion, in my view, no Democrat can win those districts. They're not even competitive in the year 2017 and 2018. So it is a real problem for Democrats and something we have to sort out. Now, having said that, you know, for example, I did not have a stellar NRA record from you know, Deer Hunter, Beaver County. Mm -hmm. uh, very typical blue-collar, love-their-guns community. I never had a stellar record with the NRA, but I, over time, was able to make, I think, a, an economic message connection with those voters that, for most of them, allowed me to get their vote, even though I didn't have a perfect record on guns. So it can be done, and I think that we have to keep working to find a way to do it, and that, uh, at the same time, um, as you know, the com converse of what's happening in western Pennsylvania is happening in eastern Pennsylvania. Right. So one of the reasons that Democrats can continue to win statewide for statewide offices, including governors, attorney general, state auditor, state treasurer, and one of the great interesting factors of the 2016 election is that while Hillary Clinton lost the state by 50,000 votes, we won and we lost the U.S. Senate race, we did win the state row offices, Attorney General, Auditor General, and State Treasurer. And there's you know, many different prog 
prognosticators who would tell you why that happened. But it is an interesting factor to look at statewide. It is. Uh, and uh, talking about the governor and even back to our earlier conversation of how in primaries, um, uh, whether Republican or Democrat, they run to their extremes, right? Uh, that wasn't the case for Tom Wolf. Uh, he seemed to be running to the middle in the primary, uh, but then as governor, he's gone pretty far left. Of course, uh, Inside Gov uh, rated him the most liberal governor in America after his uh, first year uh, in 2015 when he proposed uh, the highest uh, tax increases in the country, more than the other 49 states combined. Uh, an interesting uh, dynamic, uh, even an anomaly, uh, when you t because I think you're right. In primaries, you tack to the right or to the left uh, and then run towards the middle for the general election. That, that Tom Wolf has kind of taken a different approach. Which one? Wh who is Tom Wolf? I guess, is he that moderate that uh, ran in the primary? Or is he the liberal that uh, has proposed uh, massive tax increases? Yeah, something tells me that we're going to see that quote from NGov <laughs> yes. quite a few times in 2018. Wonder where you'll see that. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to see that everywhere. Every digital ad, every television ad is going to prominently feature that as the politics of 2018. But you're right. I think that's an interesting observation that you make, that he did really ha run in that, even in that primary, as a average guy. Yeah. Businessman. Businessman who's Jeep driving. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, as it turns out, it ends up being a brilliant strategy, sort of almost counterintuitive to what most people probably would have advised in that particular primary, and they ended up being very successful with that approach in the primary and in, in the general election, of course. Well, and of course, beating uh, those that you would say would be the establishment candidates, whether it was Rob McCord, uh, Katie McGinty running in there, John Hanger, uh, people that uh, have hold some pretty far left ideas. I mean, John Hanger for sure, um, who ends up coming into the administration and I think driving a lot of the policy agenda that uh, got him that ranking as the most liberal governor in America. What are his odds in 2018? Do you think that, um, well, one, uh, is he, does he have a good record to run on? Uh, and two, uh, can he run back to the left of, of uh, 2015 uh, policy agenda if he's reelected? Or does he have to stay in this lane of, of uh, well, never signing a budget, uh, taking what the Republicans put on his desk from pension reform to liquor privatization. Uh, what's your assessment of that? Yeah, my assessment is I, I think that clearly, and all of us in the business know and recognize the fact that they made a midterm course correction here and that the confrontational, uh, more progressive approach that he took in his first term I would argue was his hopeful approach that by winning an election that most people would say was an unexpected victory, certainly right. in the primary. I mean, by the time we got to the general, almost everybody knew that Tom Corbett was going to lose as his incompetence shone through <laughs> brightly enough that Tom Wolf couldn't lose that election. Yeah, a national anomaly, actually. Yeah, uh, really there was. With, uh, um, you know, I, I don't know Tom Wolf. Um, I had, uh, upon election, I sent him a congratulatory note. 
uh, and said, hey, we probably won't agree on a lot, but where we do, let's, let's work together. I did that with Ed Rendell. As you know, we worked with him on particular issues where we had agreement, but disagreed with him a lot. Uh, and I was, I was saddened that I didn't even get the courtesy of a reply uh, nor any meeting. So I really don't know uh, which Tom Wolf uh, is the real Tom Wolf. So uh, give me some insight. Is he this liberal uh, lion that uh, we saw in 2015, or is he this more moderate Democrat that we're seeing in 2017? Yeah, well, one thing that I'm very sure of when I say who is a real Tom Wolf, I have known him for about 20, 25 years. I've spent you know, many conversations with him. I've been to his home over the years. Um, and the one thing that I'm very sure of is that this is genuinely one of the nicest guys I've ever known in the world of politics. Um, he has a real genuineness about him that I always was struck with very early on in getting to know him. Um, he's comfortable in his own skin. He's proud of what he accomplished as a businessman, being able to build that business, several businesses in the way that he did. Uh, that soft-spoken, friendly, affable guy that you sit down and have a cup of coffee with, that many people have experienced this, that is the genuine and the real Tom Wolf. Some of his friends have even said over the years, Tom, you're too nice of a guy <laughs> to be in politics. And they joke about it even to this day. You're such a nice guy. How could you be in politics <laughs> of all professions? But at the same time, a guy who entered the Peace Corps, for example, is the real Tom Wolf. That that guy believes in that Peace Corps mission and believes in giving back to the, his community in a way that he can, not just financially, but with his time and his energy and his intellect. I mean, he really is that guy. He's, he was a tremendously involved, for example, in the York County community and every aspect of the York County community. And, you know, I think my observation is, he didn't tell me this, my observation was that he wanted to take that commitment to service, that ability to give back in a way to his state, to this next level, and that he knew he could. We know that he wrote a $10 million check his own personal money, which was a tremendous advantage in that primary, not to be overlooked at all as part of the right. formula yep. for victory. I mean, your ability to write that check. But it is a check you still have to write, and you have to sit down with your family and say, I'm going to take some of our personal fortune, and I'm just going to give it a shot in politics. Well, and it looks like uh, he might be facing uh, uh, another opponent. Uh, there's two potential uh, opponents right now uh, that have also said they'll write that kind of a check. Uh, Scott Wagner, as you know, a, a wealthy uh, businessman who is in, uh, I think, with everything. Uh, and Paul Mango from out here in uh, Pittsburgh uh, has also said that he's willing to write a big check uh, to make this happen. Um, handicap things for me in 2018. Uh, and who do you think the, uh, more, the more difficult opponent for uh, Tom Wolf to face? Is it a Mango uh, candidacy or a Wagner candidacy in, in 2018? Yeah, I, th I think my handicap, first of all, for we Democrats, this is an existential threat election. And that's 
the, the necessary sense of urgency that we have to have about this. We just talked about the overwhelming majority in the House and the Senate that the Republicans hold. And that's not going to change in the foreseeable future. And we also know that within each caucus, uh, those caucuses have become more conservative over the years, right? We talked about why conservatives are getting elected in, the, in these Republican districts in the primaries. And you have to be more conservative to get elected. And so you end up, I know you've been thrilled about this and by this, and, <laughs> and actually have been uh, partly responsible for it to your credit for what you believe in and that those leg legislative bodies have become more conservative. So for we Democrats, this is an existential threat election. I mean, literally everything that I worked for in my generation, everything who stood with me and fought f what we fought for in my generation of politics on union issues, on economic issues, on social issues, are faced with an existential threat. I mean, literally, if a Republican wins this gubernatorial election with this legislature, everything that I fought for and stood for will be gone in four years. And I really believe that. Hmm. And I think that's the powerful undercurrent for Democrats in, in, this, in this election. And I still, having said that, as I look at it in 2018, I still handicap it that Tom Wolf is the slight favorite. I think generally speaking, we know in Pennsylvania and in most states, the incumbent certainly has a slight advantage going into the election. I still believe, at least as of right now, that on the ground with average voters, that most of the energy, more of the energy, not necessarily most, but more of the energy and enthusiasm and attention and activism is coming from the left. Just like the Tea Party activism came from the right in that particular time period for all the reasons right. that we know now, mm -hmm. I really think the Trump presidency has created this level of enthusiasm and activism that I haven't seen in a long time. You know, can we tap into that in an organized way? Can we make that useful in the election? I mean, time will tell. But as I look at it right now sitting here, and we know it's a long way from the election, I still would give Tom Wolf a slight favorite position well Mike uh, we could go on for for a long long time uh, but we and I've taken up a lot of your time and I really do appreciate sitting down uh, I'm sure we will do this again uh, and uh, sometime soon but it's uh, been a, a pleasure uh, to sit and chat with you I, I appreciate our friendship while we're on polar opposites politically uh, and I root for your defeat as you root for mine politically um, the good thing is that we can enjoy a cup of coffee, we can smoke a cigar, uh, and we can shake hands and, and uh, wish each other well. And I wish you well in your endeavors, despite yeah. my wish that you lose on a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Matt. It, well, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. And I think we have had a unique relationship in the Harrisburg community, and we are on the polar opposites of every issue. But over those years, we've been able to talk about that. Yep. We've been able to debate that. We've been able to disagree with each other and still maintain a real relationship and friendship. And I wish and I hope that more people can do that. And I, I do believe that ultimately that is a better way to govern. It's a better way to do politics. I understand why it's hard to do. I'm not uh, casting aspersions on those who can't do it that way. 
But I hope some folks can look at you and I and say, if those two guys can do it, (laughs) they're so diametrically opposed. (laughs) And I also do want to say this. You know, uh, I have been a fan of yours, and I admire what you've accomplished for those things you believe in. I I wish that you weren't so good at it (laughs) because I think you've moved the ball tremendously for your side of the issues. And I told you this before, but the Commonwealth Foundation, from when you started to this day has become a real powerful policy force in Harrisburg uh, to my detriment and to the detriment of the things that I believe in. But I have to give credit where credit is due. And you've done a tremendous job there. I'm a fan of what you've accomplished. Frankly, I'd like to replicate it (laughs) on the progressive side of the aisle. But I, I think that I can't leave here without mentioning that as I watched you build this from when you started. Well, I I greatly appreciate that, and uh, there's no higher admiration than someone uh, who fights on the other side to give that. So I I do appreciate that, Mike, and um, I look forward to future battles uh, policy-wise, but also uh, opportunities to sit down, break bread, and enjoy a cigar together. So thank you for coming on the inaugural podcast of Brews and Views, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. It's been great to be here share this coffee with you and again we're at the leaf and bean in the strip district in pittsburgh it's a beautiful day it doesn't get much better than this to talk politics that's right with my friend matt while we smoke a cigar and drink coffee thanks mike thank you matt you've been listening to brews and views a production of commonwealth partners chamber of entrepreneurs find us on facebook at commonwealth partners and follow matt briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. 